so very it, it's a very important uh, position i don't agree i think that uh, god can replace us in instance instincts um, but i will tell you this no matter what uh happens in my life one of the prayers that i pray all the time is that i can serve the body of christ i want to serve the body of christ you know why because i love you i love you and you know why i love you because christ loved me first that's the only way it happens so uh i just want to say that so as we get ready to uh, read this scripture let's pray father god you are good you're very good you know i think you, you, sh you demonstrate your goodness in so many different ways. But one of the overwhelming ways that you show your goodness is this, is that you are patient and you wait on us. You are wise beyond what we understand about ourselves. Lord, you know us intricately, intimately. You know every part of our being, all the things that make us tick and move. And Lord God, you, you're, you're going to win the battle for our hearts because you have called us and made us for you. So, Lord God, I pray that we would meet you here, hear your voice, that we would be transformed in big ways and in small ways, but overall that we would walk away and say, glory be to the Lord. So we pray this all with one voice in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah, or Isaiah speaking, he said this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He was high and he was exalted. The train of his robes, they filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. Each had six wings. With two of them, they covered their faces. With two of them, they covered their feet. And with two of them, they flew. They were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Man! Powerful stuff, man. You know why it's super powerful? Because one day our eyes will see it. Man, that should make a difference in everything you think from that moment forward. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts shook, the thresholds shook, the temple was filled with smoke. And I cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs, they flew to me with a living and a live coal in his hand. He had taken it with thongs from the altar. When it touched my mouth, he said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt has been taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Atone for is a, is a, it's more of an accounting term than it is a religious term. It means paid in full. You owed a debt, but now it is paid in full. Someone came in and threw that money on the counter and said, this is on behalf of. So then the person that I owed it to can no longer look at me and I can no longer look at them. You ever owe anybody money for a period of time? You kind of avoid them, right? Well, good, good man. But um, I want to tell you this. Sometimes you owe people money and then you, 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 you can't get it to them right away, so you kind of avoid them. Why? Because you feel, man, there's like this thing going on. You know what I mean? 
what Jesus Christ has paid that debt, he's paid that full, that that he has he has enabled those living coals to touch our lips and take away our sins. Jesus, remember, we're looking at the Beatitudes when he was walking with his disciples. He started to say to them, blessed, and then he would give them all these things that they were blessed, but they were counterintuitive. They didn't make a whole lot of sense. Blessed is those who are poor in spirit. Well, wait, how could you be blessed if you're poor? The next one is even more shocking. He says, blessed are you if you mourn. You're like, wait a minute, has anybody ever mourned in this place? Man, it's a bad feeling, like so bad. Uh, you know, it makes your stomach sick a little bit. And you're like, man, blessed are you who mourn. And then he kind of throws, he throws the, the sheet off of what the blessing is. He says, blessed are those who are willing to be mourned. That's probably even a better way for us to understand it. Be willing to mourn. Because you know what the truth is? We're not willing. Most of us are not willing to mourn. We, we love joy, we love laughing, we love ease, we love comfort, we love peace. But Job understood, that's one of the songs that we, uh, we, blessed be the name of the Lord. It was about him. He's like, he gives and he takes away. He understood biblical mourning in a way that gave him joy that unless you're willing to suffer the pain, you're never going to get to. You're never going to get to it. He says, if you mourn, you shall feel my comfort. That's what he's saying to us. So that was a long intro. I just want to say this. As I was writing these things, as I'm thinking about the Beatitudes, I want to say that Christianity is not a cosmetic to be applied, nor is it a uniform to be worn. When Christianity becomes that to us, you know who will know it first? The unsaved. They will come in and say, those are great uniforms, and that's great makeup. They look great on the outside, but it's pretty clear to me something's missing. Can't put my finger on it, but it's there. See, one of the things that I love about our church, I love about New Life Church, is it's not a perfect family. There's a lot of inconsistencies. There's a lot of flaws when you look at it. But you know what, though? It's perfect in its imperfection. Does that make sense? It's dysfunctional in the, not super dysfunctional. You guys are great, man, I tell you. I would never, you're like, did he just call me dysfunctional? <laughs> yes, and I'm your dysfunctional brother. Yeah. But I, w <laughs> but I want to say this. I would have it no other way. I would have it no other way. And this is who Jesus has come to claim as his own. So Christianity is something that is forceful. And it is sometimes violently. It is an invasion of our heart, our mind, and our soul. And what it does is it works its way from the inside out, not the outside in. So we cannot apply the Beatitudes like a makeup. Because it doesn't make us a Christian. Walking with Christ, knowing Christ, intimacy with Christ pushes it out. Because he lives and abides in me. His glory cannot be contained. It will push its way out. He literally says his spirit is like a spring welling up from our loins. I mean, there's a lot of vivid imagery. It's coming up from our guts. Have you ever seen a, a, a real spring in the wilderness, in, in anywhere, a spring-fed lake? When you find it, this water is coming from somewhere. I have no idea where it's coming from, but nothing can stop it. 
You could pour rocks into it. You could put mud over it. You could put concrete. Nothing stops it. It will always find a way to get out. It comes from a pressured reserve underneath the ground. And that's what salvation is. Jesus, I see it, has come largely to get us out of our own way. Why? Because apart from God, I realize I am my own worst enemy. I always have been. See, some people can look at their lives and their major successes. And they're like, I wasn't my worst enemy. I'm pretty good at making my life a success. But I realize that there are successes that the world can offer me that can make me an incredible enemy of God. You know what they do? They're like a strong jab. Bam. Stay back over there. Bam. Lord, I don't care. I'll go to church. Bam. But stay back. This is my life. I'll give you a little bit, but no, you keep staying away. Keep arm distance away. Jesus is a great wrestler. That's what I see. He's always after control. Is there anybody who ever wrestled in high school here? Yeah. Remember what they used to teach you to do? They would teach you to get in, and then they would call you to kind of lock up, and then you'd pummel under. You're always looking to try to get underneath so you could grab that waist and then bring a person down. That's what Jesus is doing. He's a great wrestler. One of the things that we see about Jesus is he demonstrates himself to be an outstanding and an awesome warrior. He's an awesome warrior, but this is what we have to understand about his his warrior nature. He is not willing to fight our outside oppressors before he gets us to tap out. So what I see is this. If I want God to change my wife or I want God to change my boss, or if I want God to change my kids, I want God to change my finances, I want God to change anything, he says, sure, I'll do it, but I'm going to start unpacking your stuff first. Remember that room you got in your life back there? It's kind of locked. Let's go back there. Oh, no, Lord, let's stay in the front room. He's like, no, 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 we got to go back there because there's something in there. I can smell it. Let's keep moving forward. I was looking for examples all week because the Bible literally is an illustration, a vivid illustration of all of Jesus' teachings. Remember he said, all of the Bible testifies of me. It's all pointing to me. Everything I say can be seen in vivid color. And I thought to myself, the first example that came to my mind was Jacob. He's a wonderful example of what it is to mourn. Well, if you know anything about Jacob, you got to be asking yourself, huh? That guy's not an example of anything but the amazing grace of God. Yes, he he is. But what we don't understand was that Jacob was rejected by his father. And because he was rejected by his father, it left a gaping hole in Jacob's heart. Men, and this is just an add-on, if you have children, and I tell you this as a brother, learn to love your children well. Learn to be good listeners of them. Learn to pay attention to them. Learn how to speak to them and talk to them and listen. Learn even how to disagree with them. All the while telling them that you love them. You want to change the world? Do it there. Don't vote for anybody because they're all liars. They're all liars. Change your home by changing your kids. This world will be different, right? So Jacob, because he longed for this thing, he longed for an affirming and a validating love, he longed for approval, 
He could never get it from a father. So you know what he did? He grabbed it. That's what humanity will do. When they're separated from the love of their father, they will grab at importance. They will grab at things in sometimes very sketchy and scandalous ways. And that's Jacob's life. If you look at Jacob's biography, you're like, dude, this is, this is truly, he was saved from the gutter. He was manipulative. He was a con man. He even conspired to outright defraud his own father on his deathbed of a blessing that he was certain would fill the aching need for value and significance. But what Jacob didn't know because he was blinded by thinking he had to make this success in his life was that his first father, his heavenly father, and that's the one whom all humanity has been separated from, from the very first action in the Garden of Eden. We have been separated from our heavenly father who made us in his image. We were supposed to reflect his glory. We were supposed to live in intimacy and all this beauty, beautiful interaction, and it's been taken from us because we've chosen to distrust him. So we've been separated. Why did God separate us? So that he could ultimately save us. So Jacob didn't know this, that his first father was cornering him. He was cornering him to bring him to a place of full surrender. Unless God corners you to that place where you can fully throw your hands up, you might just be religious. Salvation is indeed a supernatural event. In, in many ways, it it's not just going to church. You have to go to church. You have to hear the word. You have to hear the gospel. You have to be taught. But in the end, it is between God and the person that he saves. That's the truth. So he was cornering Jacob. And I thought to myself, I remembered the last night before Jacob would go meet his brother Esau. This was a pretty scary night. Jacob was alone with his past. Have you ever remembered points in your life when you were alone with your past? Not always the best place to be, huh? He was about to meet a potentially painful consequence of his actions. He was alone with a really warped and distorted past and a very questionable character. And he was sitting there and he was thinking to himself, what the heck am I going to do now? Couldn't go back and afraid to move forward. Well, as the story tells us, God walks into the camp right when he's about to eat dinner. It's not really clear all that went on during the meal, but after the meal was finished and the dishes were put off to the side, God says, I'm going to leave. It's at that point Jacob realizes who he's eating dinner with, and he goes, uh-uh, you can't go anywhere until you give me a blessing. You can't go anywhere until you give me a blessing. Why? Because he knew that a blessing from God, this true blessing, not the one he stole, but the one that God and only God could give, was going to change his destiny. Jesus is our blessing. He can change your destiny. He can change your future. He can change your present today. He can even settle and reclaim parts of our past. He is indeed our true blessing from our Father in heaven in every way, shape, or form. So Jacob's like, I need this blessing. And what does God say? Nope. So what happens as he's about to walk out, Jacob, because he's not a weak guy either, grabs Jesus and pummels under and he starts to fight with Jesus. But I don't know. Has anybody ever fought with Jesus? I have. He beats me up. Well, he beat Jacob up. He beat Jacob up all night long. But I'll give you this. Jacob kept fighting. He kept fighting. You know, man, I, can't, I don't know. I don't know how to tell you stories. But 
I was never the greatest fighter, but I cried. Squeak, squeak. That's the way Jacob was. All crying around, not letting you go, but getting whooped. So they wrestled. During that fight, God gets Jacob to the end of himself. It is so traumatic that it hurts Jacob's hip. It hurts his hip so bad he is forever with a limp. See, nobody wants to incur injury at that level. You know why? Because it's painful. No one wants pain. But it's only the pain of mourning that can lead to the comfort of the blessing of Christ. It is. When Jacob can no longer stand on his own two feet and in his own strength, God says to him, let me go. Jacob goes, no way, you'll have to kill me. So God does an amazing thing. He asks Jacob, he goes, what's your name? And I thought to myself, why did he ask Jacob his name? He didn't know. Of course he did. Why did he ask him? I'll tell you why. Because he had to get Jacob to admit who he was. By saying that his name was Jacob, he had to admit he was a manipulator. He had to admit he was a liar. He had to admit he was a schemer. By saying Jacob, he's saying, God, that's who I am on my own. Apart from your blessing, that's who I am. It's an admission of guilt. Heartbreaking. Have you ever had to confess on yourself? Number one rule in my neighborhood, don't rat nobody out, don't ever rat on yourself. Am I the only one here? Jesus is like, we can't move forward until you rat on yourself. I don't want you to rat on them. I want you to rat on you. But, but Lord, but Lord. And guess what? As soon as he does it, what does God say? Aha! I got you. No, no, no. God says, okay, now let's start with a new name. And what does he call him? He goes, you used to be called the heel grabber, the schemer. But now you know what your name is. You fought with man and you fought with God and you prevailed. But one of the things that I read in a, a Jewish Talmud one time is there's a play on words with that name, Israel. And the play goes like this. It's that you thought you were fighting with me, but I was really fighting with you for you. When we fight each other, it's so that I can win over you. But God is saying, I'm going to fight with you to win you. It's like us with our kids. When you have a resistant kid, you got to sometimes fight with them, right? But you're not fighting so that you could get over and go, I won! And if you're doing that, don't. Get over them so you could go, I'm with you. Please, Lord. I love you. That's what happened in that camp. God's greatest work, I realize, is getting us to the end of ourself. It's getting us to recognize that we need to be rescued. I don't like that idea. The church doesn't like that idea. That's why they'll teach you five ways to holiness. Do this, do this, do this, give, look like this, speak like this, get your Bible, and you do that. I'm telling you, you'll hear it. You'll hear it at almost every church in new life is not different. And I'm not complaining, I'm not criticizing, but I'm telling you, the work that God wants to do does include those things, but it's way beyond that. It's way deeper than that. It's not just what you do, it's what prompts what you do. It's something from deep within. It's something only he could produce. When I mourn, it is more than sadness. It is the deepest form of pain. I told you, I remember feeling mourning when I was 25. My father had died. 
and the first one of my parents, and I got to tell you, I never, I always knew it was, I mean, 25, we all know people are going to die. But when it happened, man, I can remember I couldn't even cry. I was sick to my stomach for three days. Remember, I was in the middle of my assessment back then. And all I could think of was all those things, all those times I lied to her. And I was like, man, this is over. I can't, I'm never going to be able to fix this. I remember it really bad. And it was, it was heartbreaking. To be a mourner in the way Jesus says, it carries with it a profound sense of loss. I had something that is very precious, and now it is gone forever. It's very close to the feeling of hopelessness. That's what I felt. I felt hopeless. Hopeless. When Israel, when God took Israel into Canaan, the first city that he came to, brought Israel to, was, you remember, was Jericho, right? Jericho was a walled city. Do you know what their number one product was? Theft. That was their number one moneymaker. They were a center for Asherah worship. It was a virtual stronghold of a city. 35-foot walls, armed security, God took his people around the wall. What did he do? He walked them around for seven days, seven laps. I know there's a lot of ink that goes into this, and I know that there's a lot of smart men that have a lot of great ideas on this. And I don't know. I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lot of great ideas out there. But when I look at this, I think to myself, why did you do this? Why did you do that, God? And I think it seems obvious to me that when they walked around that, those walls and they saw those guys up on there with big stones in their hands, spears because this is a bronze age army there was like there's no way we're getting into that city unless god breaks down the wall at the end of seven times i'm pretty sure they thought to ourselves now what now what we're, we're supposed to take over that city show us how and do you know what god said praise me with a full heart of faith not faith in your faith but a faith in me and my faithfulness. And when they did it, what happened? Those walls came down from the inside out. They fell. Literally, today you could go and see the archaeological evidence. They fell this way, not this way. Why? Because God exploded in their midst. Man, what a warrior. What a warrior. And who would he have to fight with first? Israel. Israel would have never believed. They were the ones generations before that's like, man, we can't get through there. That's a 35-foot wall city. One of the parts of mourning is this, is that we are confronted with the consequences of mankind's sin. We realize that we collectively as a humanity have permanently warped and damaged this world. No matter how much repentance that occurs, the things that we have lost, the things that we have destroyed will never be recovered again. I know that that's bad news, but that's part of the mourning that brings comfort. Last weekend in the city of Chicago, you had probably 10,000 young men and women who came down and murdered the downtown area, beat people mercilessly, stomped on cars. Why? They were angry? Did they have a right to be angry? I'm sure they had a right to be angry. Man, we've become a society that is fully prepared to act in violence toward one another. And guess what? I got bad news for you. It's going to get worse. 
before it gets better. But we also remember this. The comfort that God promises us is that this will happen until the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. Apart from God, my humanity cannot accomplish something. But by faith, in the comfort of God, I realize his strength can do what I cannot do. I cannot do. When I mourn, I feel a profound sense of sadness at the deepest level of my being. I realize the brokenness of humanity with an utter heartbreak. I know when there's a difference between whether I'm walking and operating in the flesh and when I'm operating in my flesh, uh, or, or spirit, spirit or flesh, because both abide in me, and they do to you too, right? When I see the brokenness, when I see the guys on Lake Street all high and they're literally like this, they sit be like this for 45 minutes i'm like i'm waiting for him to fall they're just frozen in time and i know when i'm in my flesh when i get mad and i go what are you getting guys all rough and just slap you around and then i know when i'm in the spirit because my stomach hurts i go this is this is the reality of our sin this is where we've gotten to, managing the world in our own strength. It makes me sad all night long. I realize not only is the world broken, but I realize that I have played a role in its destruction. I may not have caused people to divorce their wives. I may not have caused children to join gangs. I may not have caused wars or various things that have broken the world's back. But I can tell you this, I've done my share of stuff. You know, I want to tell you a deep theological thought. The way God has created humanity, think of it like a giant fish tank. We are all in the tank together, every one of us. So that means we are connected by the water in which we swim. That means what, listen, it's not going to sound pretty, what I expel, others have to eat, and so do I. You know what, Jay, you know what Mordecai said to uh, Esther? He said, a bad time's coming, and God wants to save his people. You have a choice. You can either cooperate with God and let him use you, put you in danger to use you to save the people of Israel, or you can run away. But I'm telling you this, if you choose to run away, you think it's going to save you, it will not save you. It's going to chase you down and consume you just like it's consuming everyone else. God says you've got a choice. Mourn so that I can work through you, bringing comfort, use you as an agent of comfort, or you can be consumed with those who refuse to mourn. That's what Christ says. That's what God says to us. I realize when I mourn that I am so far from my original design that there are no amount of tears, no amount of self-loathing, there's no amount of sacrifice, no amount of good works that could ever save me, ever. You know, one of the things I mourn about all the time is that I have never loved the Lord my God with all of my heart. I know there are people who say I do, and I, whatever, that's between you and Jesus. But you know what I really am sad about? Is there's part of my humanity that can't even do it even if I wanted to. 
And I mourn over it. And I go, why, Lord God? Why can't I do this? And you know what happens for us in this comfort that he brings? The law of God that once brought me consequence and death, you shall or else, now becomes a promise. At the end, when God finishes his work, he says this, I tell you the truth, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart. You will have no idols other than me. You will never have anyone beside me. You will honor the Sabbath the way that I intended it to. You will be faithful to your family. You will honor your parents. They are a promise. I guarantee it. Jesus said this, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. By fulfilling the law on our behalf, it promotes and brings out that perfection in and through us. Man, this is a powerful, powerful truth. Paul understood what it was to mourn. He said, why do I do the things that I know are wrong, even the good things that I do? There's something deep within me that wants to twist and pervert them, even the good things I desire. And then he looks at himself as if in the mirror, and he says, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to save me? It's like, there's nothing I can do. And then he goes, I remember, praise be to the Lord God Almighty, for he saves me through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, because this is true, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the comfort. He realized he was without hope apart from grace. And then on that moment where he sunk in the dirt with ashes upon his head, God says, I have saved you through my son. Peter, Peter got it. He understood it. Here's a perfect example. Peter, his name was Shimon. You know what Shimon means? One who hears, listens, and responds. But when he met Jesus, you know what he realized? I know that that's my name. But that's not my life. He's with Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, take me out in the boat, right? After, their preach, after the preaching, he goes, hey, Pete, how, how did you catch fish last night? He goes, well, you know, it wasn't a great night. And he goes, okay, set out a little bit and then drop your nets. And he's like, come on, Jesus. We've been doing this all night long. And what happens? He goes, humor me. Jesus says, humor me. Put your fish, put the nets out. What does he do? He puts the nets out. And more fish come into those nets than ever before. Almost sinks how many boats? We don't know. Four or five boats. And what does Peter do? Doesn't jump around. Praise be to God. I can't believe it. What a catch. He weeps bitterly. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. Why? He goes, depart from me, Lord, for I am a man who is unclean. I'm unworthy of you being here. And what does Jesus do? He touches Peter's head and he lifts up his face and he says, you used to catch fish, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Man, man, can you see the blessedness of mourning? David, get it? What does he say? In the 51st Psalm, he said, surely I was born a sinner. We look at babies, surely babies they don't sin they're perfect wait till they talk you'll see he says surely i was born a sinner yes from the moment my mother conceived me i was in sin you know why he knew that because he slept with his friend's wife got her pregnant 
and then had him murdered because he didn't cover up his crime. And then for a year pretended he was a great guy until his loving father uses Nathan to confront him. Nathan has seen it. He's seen it the whole time. Come on, let's level with Jesse. Let me give you a couple things that the morning heart does. The morning heart is overwhelmed by their sense of their own spiritual need. The proud person that doesn't receive revival, doesn't receive comfort, they focus on the failures of others. The person who is brokenhearted, the one who receives this revival from the Lord, is compassionate. They can forgive much because they know how much they have been forgiven. But the proud person, they have a critical fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but they're only with the telescope. The broken person esteems all others as better than themselves. They have a dependent spirit. They recognize they cannot do it with the help of others. They need other people. The broken person says this, I'm willing to yield my right to be right, but the prideful person always has to fight to make sure they've won the argument. The broken person has a sense of their own unworthiness. I know that that's tough. Are you telling me I'm unworthy? Not compared to me. You're ten times better than me. But if you stood next to Christ, you'd see it in a minute. But you know what that does? They are thrilled that God would use them at all. You know, that's one of the things I think of all the time. I go, I got a jersey with the greatest team on earth. And you know what? I don't got no skill. One time this lady, Debbie, said to me, Tom, you encourage me so much. I go, yeah, I should encourage you. Because if God could use me like me, he can use anyone. They're eager for other, they're the, the, the blessed, the blessed one, the mourner is eager for others to get credit. They rejoice when others are lifted up. They're humbled by how much they have to learn and how much they have to grow. The person who is brokenhearted accepts, listen, personal responsibility and they can see where they are wrong in a situation and when they do, they quickly admit their failure and they seek forgiveness and amends when necessary. They're able to acknowledge specifics when they confess sin. You want to get free? Go to the cross and tell him exactly what you're doing. And let him show you not only what you're doing, but why you're doing it. That's when there'll be some beautiful comfort. <sighs> the prideful, no, the, the, the mourning heart realizes this, that they have a continual need for the attitude of repentance. Let's give you one last thing. Let's get to that comfort. I want you to understand this, that your repentance, my repentance, my mourning will never be perfect. This does not give me an excuse to continue on in my immaturity, but it prompts me when I fall to get back up. Push forward. I'm like Paul. I strive, reaching out for all that Christ has for me. I don't want one thing to be left on the plate. I want me to die, not 90%, but 100. It 
said the cross is where the grace of God breaks my repetitive compulsion to sin. And this is where I'm going to leave it. God loves us in a million different ways. But you know, one of the ways that stands out to me more than anything else is the wisdom that he uses. There's only one truth. As much as the world now tells us there's, I got my own truth. You got an opinion. (laughs) There's one truth, but I've also understood this. That we all learn differently. We all grow differently. And you know the way God really demonstrates his kindness toward us? Is that he is very, he's very determined in my life, but he's incredibly gentle in my life. He knows exactly the place that he's got to get to. He's like, yeah, there's this little part in the recess in your heart. It's really deep. But if he goes in there with an axe, you know what he's going to do? He's going to kill me, tear me apart. But you know what he does is he keeps pulling back layer, thin layer after thin layer after thin layer after thin layer until he gets to that place so he doesn't damage the good stuff. And then he goes in and he goes, I got it. And then he heals us. He starts to heal us this way. God is delicate. He's deliberate. But he's gentle. That's the mourning that brings comfort. So let's rise up and let's worship the God who comforts us in our mourning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. They will be This is the kingdom, this is the kingdom of heaven, ask and he will, ask and he will, for this is the kingdom, this is the kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom, 
Theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be filled. Yes, we will. They will be filled. Thank you, Lord. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven. Ask and he will. 